0: Hi, this is Jay Khadija of Dudakman. Today is Tuesday, December 1st, 2020. It's 3.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, I use she, her pronouns. I'm the director of the We Be Imagining podcast and um, as a nascent public technology project at the Columbia University's the American Assembly and Insight Center. I'm here with my co-host, Ilan Mendel. What's up, Ilan?
1: Hey, Khadija. Uh, I'm Ilan. I'm a Ph.D. student in the Future Autonomy Research Group at Cornell Tech. I use he, him pronouns, and I'm excited to talk to Noah today.
0: Um, and I have to say that I constantly nag Elon to invite people to the podcast. I generally am the one that invites people, but I'm really excited today to speak to Noah Feehan, uh, maker of objects and experiences. And one of the things that really left out to me about your work, Noah, is that you know a lot of times politically... Be- Being in tech means that we talk a lot about the right to refuse and please don't deploy this automated decision-making system or look, this thing is surveilling you. That's cool. Um, And at the same time, we're not anti-tech. We're not Luddites. Um, And I just was so fascinated by all the things that you're creating and making and designing. Um, So welcome to the show. If you could share a little bit more about yourself, what pronouns you use, and we can start from there.
2: Thank you, thank you. It's so nice to be here. I'm Noah fian. I use he, him pronouns. Um and as as you noted, I'm I, I I call myself a maker of objects and experiences for lack of any more specific or better term. Um thanks for looking at looking at my work. I uh I hope to be able to sort of weave them all together on this on this uh in this hour and, and uh figure out where I should go from there.
1: We had met briefly, I think, uh when you came to visit some of Wendy's student projects, but then uh, I heard a talk you gave at a conference called Sketching and Hardware about graceful systems. Uh, and it made mm-hmm. me think a lot about something that I spend a lot of time thinking about, which is uh, Mark Weiser's essay on com computing. Mark Weiser worked at Xerox Park, and he laid out this vision for you know, the, the kind of purpose of a computer is to help you do something else. A computer should be kind of quiet and an invisible servant and it, it should extend your unconscious, and it should create calm. And mm. I don't think we've done that, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. what we've done is, like, make a bunch of things that, like, make us do things we wouldn't want to do, uh, <laughs> or they supervise and dictate and surveil us. We get, end up in this, like, gamified neo-Taylorism. We yeah. have all these things that demand our attention constantly, and then just, like, instead of inciting calm, stress us all the fuck out. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so I really, I was hoping you could lay out, I think what, when you talked about graceful systems, it seemed like an extension of this in some way. And I was hoping you could lay that out a little bit.
2: Yeah. Thanks. I, um, I love the the calm computing essay and I, I often feel like we as a, as a community played a game of telephone with it and we almost got it right. Um, (laughs) and instead of, you know, uh, magnifying our imaginations in some sort of, Good way we've you know designed the filter bubble and the you know fast track to radicalism through YouTube recommendations and all these all these dark corners we've turned with um, one would hope the best intentions but I often doubt that part too. Um, Graceful systems is kind of the shorthand I've been using to try to reconcile a lot of the work I've been doing and interested in doing over the last decade with an overarching logic. Um, I really enjoyed uh, a. A design book called Super Normal a couple years ago. Um, it's uh, it's just sort of a conversation between a Japanese and an English designer whose names elude me at the moment. Um, but they they just take exemplars of canonical objects. So they just look at the most salt shaker, y salt shaker, the one with the least adornment, the most functionality, and the one that has you know also succeeded in becoming what the world thinks of when they think salt shaker. So if I described to you like uh, you're in a fast food joint with melamine countertops and there are black and white salt shakers made of plastic, I think you might be able to imagine the fluting up and down the sides of that of that object, right? It's an oblong, uh, sort of a truncated obelisk. Uh, anyways, this idea of the most normal normal um, was interesting to me uh, as it applies to the the sort of the, the air we bring of being a local to the technology we use. Um, maybe I should step back and, and go a little bit through my background because I end up talking about waiting tables a lot um, when I, when I do UX and design talks. So um, all through college, I was a waiter at a fancy restaurant. Um, and then uh, I, I worked in corporate HR where I kind of did the same thing. I, I helped very important people feel at home in a new environment. So when you're a waiter, you, um, you play the role of host in this very uh, sociologically deep way. I'm not sure if Irving Goffman comes up a lot here, but, you know, um, the sort of, the faces you assume. Are you familiar with Irving Goffman's work, uh, like uh, the presentation of self in everyday life? Um yeah, we or, talk about this no, in Wendy's writing. group a lot, but but yeah, Khadija, I'm not sure if we've actually spoken about it.
0: I don't know, yeah.
2: I, I like his writings just because they, they really feel like um, a good set of thinking tools, for, for me at least. Um, Goffman breaks down a lot of social interactions in terms of face, uh, what face you put on. Literally, the, the Greek word persona is mask. It is the face you put on in a particular situation. And so Goffman would analyze something like um, the way a salesperson sells uh, you know, a refrigerator to a customer in terms of uh, who's putting on which face, who has what to lose in the social interaction. So in that example, the customer sort of holds the reins, but doesn't have the intelligence of a domain expert like the salesperson. And the salesperson has um, a real motivation to win the commission and make the customer feel at ease and in control and command of all the options at hand. And so, one common move, and you may have experienced this yourself in a sales interaction, is that the salesperson will let you backstage. Um, he or she will remark parenthetically, "This one never sells right." You know, if that's not the one that the salesperson is directing you to. So, this idea of being able to seed certain ground in a performance, in an interaction, right? That the salesperson is letting down the facade of representing that all of his or her products are great and and choosing to let you backstage to understand, oh, you know, nobody likes this one. That's actually um, a move to make the customer feel at ease and in control, where in fact, very little additional information or power has changed hands. It's just a changing of the perspectives from which the conversation is occurring. Um, I thought a great deal about this when I was like waiting next to a big buffet full of steak waiting for rich people to come and eat it. Um, and I got to spend a lot of time, um, watching how the sort of the most expensive and the most, uh, high stakes, uh, service interactions occurred. The place that I was a fancy waiter, you know, the guy who ran it was from one of those Swiss hospitality schools and was very rigid. And we were not, uh, we were, uh, you know, forbidden to refuse tips. And that, that was actually a really interesting uh, freedom that meant that everybody could be treated like the best customer, like the most important in the house. And so that was the beginning of me thinking of a lot of interactions I create in the realm of hospitality, uh, being able to make a space for guests, be, being able to make people feel at home in a, new, uh, in a new location or in a new domain or with a new set of experiences or ideas. Um, and from there, Uh, I got into performance and um, got into uh, a a lot of more tech support side of technology interactions. So I I ran the tech support uh, division of an Internet of Things company back in 2006 when nobody understood what Internet of Things was, and it was just like waiting tables. Um, The customer had a set of pretty rigid demands and expectations, and it was my job to Um, help them most comfortably come about to a better relationship with the object that was giving them trouble. Um, I know this sounds sort of like a circuitous route to explain a phrase that's pretty simple sounding, but um, I find every time I... I start in the middle. Um, I, I I end up explaining this background stuff anyway. So I came to tech through a kind of hospitality and service industry route. Um, and that has really influenced most of the UX thinking and experience design I've done since I got out of the, the media lab a decade ago.
0: No, that's really helpful. Um, and it just reminds me, one of the questions that came to mind is that part of what's appealing about Graceful is this idea of like, feeling at home and hospitality, but mm-hmm. I appreciated in the in the lengthy thematic email that <laughs> you sent us that you you talked about it's not just about being nice. Yeah. And that reminded me of um I don't know if you saw this, but Sia came out with this movie that's supposed to be featuring a protagonist who has autism and they the like disability community is pissed because they picked an actor that is uh is neurotypical and they felt like they were making fun of uh non-speaking people with autism yeah and in response to this backlash on twitter there was an account um that's based in south africa i can't really remember the the handle right now Mm -hmm. but they had this whole thread about um aac uh, augmented communication devices Mm -hmm. and one of the people had designed a special layout where he could say "Get the fuck away from me" and "You stink" and nice. "I hate you," yeah, and was just saying that like <laughs> part of the right to communicate. Yeah, is that like people with autism are not out here just like functionally wanting to tell you "I want water"? Like, yeah, or smile. smile
2: too. Oh man, I I'm so on board with that. I haven't heard of the of the film to which you're referring, but man, one of the first things uh, I I I, I uh so i I left the Media Lab and went to the new york times r and d Lab, which was a really lovely and unique space where we we could do a lot of thinking about ways people will interact with information in the future. It was this beautifully broad brief and one of the first things we started looking at when i when I got there was how to give negative feedback to a recommendation system. How do you tell it? Don't ever play me this song again. Um, it should really be a first order um interaction to tell. You know, a a non-human recommendation system, which is, in my opinion, and by my opinion, by by definition, is a a dumber system, a a less thoughtful and compliant and and considered system. You should the first option should be able to tell it it's wrong. Um, And and there there are some really interesting implications there because like early on, maybe you can still do this, but if Google Maps uh, gets something wrong, you can shake the phone. And it will actually surface a UI, uh, a, a toast message that says, "Are these directions wrong?" And that's that's so fascinating to me because they've taken, you know, the accelerometer values, which I, you know, you don't even think Google is listening to that when you're accessing the maps. Um, and they've taken, you know, rage. They've taken shaking the phone violently to be a legitimate form of input into the device. And so, what if, you know, what if I smacked my Alexa device when it gave me the wrong? suggestion I think these are really dark dark routes to go down and I don't think that type of um, that type of input bandwidth is necessarily positive but the flip side of that is what we already have that you can only like a tweet you can't you know register another emotion or when you can when when there are ultra, uh, other emotions they're really carefully curated for the experience that people want investors to see and not for example the experience of a non-speaking person who really wants you to get the fuck away. Um, So I think even just that, that for for me, if I were applying the graceful systems lens, I'd say that I want a system that can forgive and forget. So I want a system that will forgive me for being angry and wanting to say out loud, get away from me. I, you know, I, I want to be a human. Um, I don't want to just say, thank you, please. I need water and whatnot. Um, And at the same time, like how, how would you sext? Um, How would you, how would you be dirty or romantic uh, if your input system you know, was going on Google spell check with, uh, you know, a kitty filter applied or something. I think that so much of what a graceful system can add is this really deeply human aspect of forgetting and forgiving. Um, We started 50, 70 years ago with computation and so many of our ways that we framed uh, computation interactions. And as we got you know, as we shoved more and more computers into things, system design by default tended to include computers. And we're really good at leveraging what computers are good at. They remember things verbatim and forever. They ascribe things to their creator um, indelibly. Uh, you can't disavow an utterance. Uh, you can't hope that uh, the database will forget um, a bad idea you had. Um, and all of those all of those functionalities. I'm I'm not a luddite, as 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 you mentioned earlier. That you know, I I think we should wield them more thoughtfully. Uh, and right now, one of the biggest um, the biggest antagonists to a system that would forget things after you know 30 days or something is the monetization drive. The fact that um, the dominant logic of many software experiences offered to a global audience is not. Um, a face-to-face value exchange is not pay money once for a software experience and you're done. It is a continual mining of data, a, a dynamic evolution of the yield of your user activity. Um, and that type of extraction, um, be it rent-seeking or data mining, all of those metaphors are really apt, in my opinion, because uh, you know rent and resource extraction are, are things that have their place in the world but should not be the global model for anything.
1: Also, the fact that they're interactive, right? Like, mm-hmm. you, you don't generally spend that much time interacting with a coal mine,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: yet the like the business model we've applied towards so much of, you know, especially given the pandemic, right, like online, right? Mm-hmm. It, it is it is fundamentally such that, like, the business model wants you to spend as much time there as possible. Yeah. It, that's, it yeah. fundamentally goes against the the idea of calm computing, right? Which is that these mm-hmm. things
2: should fade into the background. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's, and you know, I'm, I'm really heartened to see in the last three years, the ascendance of the, um, you know, the reformed technologists, the the person who used to work at Fang and now disavows all his or her prior work. Um, but uh, that's, that's where I feel a little strange because I mean, I've been making stuff that doesn't make any money for decades now. <laughs> um, that's that's where that's where like I have this strange feeling about the stuff I end up making. I mean, I I I do consider myself an artist, although I do not really engage with the the gallery world or or much of that. Um, I just by my my training, I, I end up, you know, thinking of things as aesthetic essays or or you know efforts to refine or identify a sublime experience and essentialize it. But those works of mine are always these, they always appear in a slant light because, because you could imagine them as products in your life. They do, they generally do a thing that's you know useful. But then if you think about it, if you think who would pay for that, <laughs> um, you get to uh, why I'm not working at a FANG company or whatnot. Um I, I was just going to say, I think that we are uh, similarly skeptical
1: of a lot of the, mm. the like reformed fang discourse, mm-hmm. right? Like there is this kind of thing where like all these people who made a bunch of money doing X Y Z bad thing mm-hmm. now show up and are like, hey, did you guys know this? This thing is really bad. Well, um, and, I... and it's it's not, yeah.
2: I, I was just going to say, there's there's a particular twist of the knife there because those are also people who have observed the inner workings of the system and are really well positioned to leverage its amplification capabilities. So it's it's quite something <laughs> um, to to turn around and become really you know popular on YouTube because you worked on the YouTube algorithm and you know exactly what it takes or you know or, or similar things.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I guess I would just add to our like skepticism of the ascendant Fang discourse, which is just a, a wonderful phrase. So thank you for coining that for me right now. Um, is that I think that on one level there's like the AI ethics discourse has become like the new white fragility, like diversity debates in which we take accountability for nothing and mm-hmm. we talk about bias while maintaining the existing systems, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. But I think that the other divide is around those who are talking about theory and those who are enacting practice and so a mm-hmm. lot of the people in critical technology are not necessarily while there's a conversation about reimagining tech that's mm-hmm. largely rooted in um, I don't know a return a return to critical race theory but that's not always coupled with this other you know abolishing and dismantling to make this other thing how like the mm-hmm. how the act is not always like well explored
2: yeah, and that there's a similar, or maybe it's the same tension, just beca- between the, the speculative and the implementable. Um, and I find a lot of times, um, at least when I, when I'm trying to, when I'm trying to make work on my own, I, I try to think of them as uh, real ob- objects from a desirable future. Um, I use this metaphor a lot. Um, have you ever, have you ever actually held like a glass hologram? I have not. No. Um, they're, you know, you know, ho- holograms. Uh, though they're, you know, these three D uh, representations of the the light field uh, of an object. Yeah, like
0: Kanye gave of of her, her father.
2: Yeah. Um, I don't know that. Uh, but you know, holography. Uh, well,
0: Kanye West gave to Kim Kardashian. He gave her a, a hologram. A, a hologram of her dad. Yeah, of her oh, dad. That's nice. It- Come back from the dead. Oh so that's it's a
2: mixed one for sure. Well, it's the thought that counts, <laughs> kind of creepy. And actually right. I don't want to think about the thought. Well there. he
0: ended her dead dad then said how like Kanye is the greatest of all time. Oh, that's sweet how, of course. That's the whole thing. But yeah. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so I, I actually mean hologram in sort of a nerdier, more specific sense, which is like an image created as a diffraction grating on a plastic substrate, used that, using laser interference to create a three D image that you can, you know, look around. Um, not like a video reconstruction or a spatial a light reconstruction. Um, but anyways, the the thing that kind of blows my mind is that if you shatter a hologram, <clears throat> right? If you break the glass, every fragment contains the entire image of the hologram, but only from a particular perspective. So if I shattered a hologram and I took a fragment from the lower right, I'd be looking up and to the left at the subject of the hologram. And I think that's such an interesting way to think about material fragments from a different dimension or a different realm. Um, I think about the way movie props are really shallow objects that have to be superficially detailed enough to carry to suspend disbelief, to carry the plot of, of, of forward. Um, you know, nobody cares that a space gun or, you know, something in Star Wars is foam core on the inside um, because all it has to do is visually bring the viewer's mind along as the narrative arc proceeds. Um, it just has to be a MacGuffin. Um, I think a lot of demonstrations of potential futuristic technologies end up being movie props in part because that's the visual vocabulary that's, that's evolved, not just in fundraising, but in, you know, fundraising for DARPA, all, all the ways that the military industrial and techno complex has been funded in the last 35 years tend to be about, uh, you know, visual demonstrations of the potential of a product. Um, there's a whole genre of like catastrophically funny or corny um product videos, like Samsung has a famous one called Day Made of Glass that is just like an over-the-top, you know, everything Samsung works perfectly. Um, and these these videos are boring and corny because they're movie props. They're not diegetic objects from a desirable future. Um, and that's what I try to make. That's what we were trying to make at the New York Times R&D Lab. And a lot of, a lot of folks uh, who have similar practices um, try to make this. And one of the tenets of that that practice of trying to really bring up an object from the future to the present is that it has to work. It really has to do the thing. Um, so I, I, I wanted to talk about one pretty conceptually dense example that we made at the New York times R and D lab quite some time ago. It, it's functionality is actually going to sound quite familiar and pretty commonplace, but in 2014, um, this was less common. And so was slightly more remarkable. Um, I designed a device called the listening table, um, and this was a table that listened to and understood the conversations that were had around it. Um, it was designed for creative meetings within the building and for journalists to use if they wanted. And uh, we had a bunch of different values and ideas that we wanted to encode into this one prototype. So I'm just going to start listing some features. Please interrupt if, um, if if one of them doesn't make sense or isn't described well. Um, but I'll I'll sort of try and summarize them all at the end. Uh, so. We tried to make sure that the table didn't steal focus from the conversation itself. So many tech demonstrations end up always being about the tech itself and not what the tech lets you do. So the first order principle was that it should uh, really just be a really good table first and then do other stuff uh, when when it can. Um, uh, So another way to make sure it didn't steal focus was to help you focus um, on the highest bandwidth signal in the room, which is the eye contact of the person you're speaking with. Um, so to that end, though we did have some subtle lighting on the table, we made sure that it was designed so that there was never a direct path between an LED and your eye. It was always reflected off of a surface. And that was because your eye naturally goes to the brightest spot in a room. So we wanted to make sure the table didn't steal focus, but the the LEDs were necessary to show that the table was augmented and that it wasn't just a regular table. It was to, to basically warn folks that it did extra stuff. Um, we also didn't like, um, I have terrible handwriting. And so one of my uh, things that I wanted the table to do was help me understand when something important was said so I didn't have to take myself out of the moment and record a note by hand. So we embedded um, some capacitive touch sensors on the surface of the table. And in a meeting, if someone said something that you wanted to recall later specifically, um, you could tap the, the table on one of those places and it would drop a marker basically into the record of the meeting to note that something semantically important uh, had happened. Um, And at the end of the meeting, uh, everybody who was there got sent a transcript that had, um, I'm sorry, a summary of the meeting that made a transcript available, but it actually just showed the text uh, and audio snippets of the times a marker was dropped. And so it was sort of the the shorthand pressy of the meeting. Um, We also implemented pre-roll. So um, we were recording audio while the the conversation occurred, and when a button was pressed, we actually got the thirty seconds of audio before the button was pressed as well as after. and we found that helped us um, it re- really reduced the cognitive load of like waiting to press the button when something important was said. It really took the the time constraint off there and, and made it much more effortless to sort of um, to sort of accumulate important parts of a meeting um, and of course, who wants to be in a room with a thing that's recording everything that's being said? So we actually spent the most time designing against all of the forms of misuse that we felt could occur. So, for example, nothing left the table. Um, the table's database of utterances and markers um, didn't go to the cloud. It was it literally lived inside of the table in a Mac Mini. Um, we didn't. Uh, we did not identify who was speaking. I actually did a lot of work to to um, be able to spectrally analyze the voices and figure out who said what, but we ended up not implementing that because a transcription system is imperfect. And it's actually pretty offensive when a robot puts words in your mouth that you didn't say. Um, And particularly in 2014, speech transcription was not nearly so good. um, And we had to hack around the Android speech API a little bit. Um, And so we, we decided just to make snippets of audio available when a marker was dropped, but not to particularly point the finger at any one person who may have said something or, or not said something. Um, and of course the biggest, uh, the only switch on the table was a very big unambiguous on off switch so that you could always make sure that it wasn't going to be listening if you did not want it to be listening. Um, and to that end, we found like this was a, a device that really helped us have franker, more productive conversations with others in the company, just about what, what decisions we might take about our technology that aren't necessarily defined by, by FANG. Um, how we might introduce a desirable form of listening machine um, without necessarily agreeing to a terms of service that, for example, you know, allowed it to be data mined for commercial ethnographic purposes or whatnot. Um, and just being able to have a real object in the room that wasn't fake, it really was doing the stuff we said, we found that to be a really interesting and productive way to get people talking about a provocative prototype um, when it's a real thing in the room, rather than just some nebulous idea that might, you know, look blue in your mind and be green in my mind. Um, having it there in the room as a real hologram fragment helped us figure out where the true anxieties lay, and it also meant that we could live with it for three months, for six months, and see, you know, after the novelty wears off, do we use this thing? Is it? Do we? You know, what? we made the technology work. Was it for the right reason? Um, And so being able to consider those things, I think is, um, I'm really aware that it was a luxury at the New York times to be able to work so thoughtfully at the state of the art and, and be supported. Um, But it really underscored um, how difficult that is anywhere else to achieve. Um, I, I don't think that the type of quick intelligence we were able to arrive upon about, you know, how, how citizens of a corporation use meetings. Um, that's, that's, you know, information that then Google creative labs was asking me about soon as the table was done. I think it's much more difficult to do in, in environments where there isn't, um, some overarching institutional desire to better the human experience. Boy, I wonder if that sounds really highfalutin. (laughs) Um, no,
0: but this was dope. I was really out of the list of stuff you sent us. That was the one that I was most, I mean, also I come from a background of thinking a lot about oral histories and also how can technologists work with oral historians and thinking mm-hmm. about listening objects. And I'm just curious. I appreciate your use of the word anxiety because I feel like there's so many anxieties around information science systems. And in particular, I was thinking, wondering, how did you think about the tension between on one level? So much of our communication is being surveilled, analyzed, scraped. Um, and on the flip side, I think a lot about how now everybody's doing all these um, Zoom webinars and presentations and no one's thinking about archiving it. Hmm. And so it feels like one of the things that you're using to design against um, kind of the misuse mm-hmm. is this right to forget. And I think you said it lasts for 28 days or something on the table and mm-hmm. it only lives locally in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the flip side you know, thinking about these objects that we're also semi-relying on for preserving like our collective memory um, and the ways in which things like Wikipedia only disproportionately represent posts that are, you know, in English or in Mm -hmm. Western uh, nations. You know, how are you thinking about this tension between preserving memory and also not having to kind of be involuntarily surveilled and never be able to get out (laughs) of this thing recording it? Yeah. And,
2: And owned by your memory, right? right and and yes. and subject to it i mean uh my my tweets auto delete after 30 days because uh i don't think you know that's not the that's not a channel where we're writing for the record right that's supposed to be a conversation um the human I, I don't think it's a mistake that humans forget things uh you know how how would we get along if every grudge was as fresh in my mind if every slight every every hurt was all, was still there um it's really hard to to forgive if there's not a promise of forgetting. Um and and I think uh managing that that tension of how one is steward of of um I guess a user of a system. I try not to say user, but it's so it's it's a shorthand that everyone knows. Um I, I don't know the answer to your to your question, Khadija, because uh I, my my off the cuff response would be to To put that decision in the hands of the the person speaking. Um, This is, you know, why, well, I'm just
0: also going to add this idea about humans forgetting also seems very specific to this. Like on Twitter, I'm speaking largely to people that I know on Twitter, Mm -hmm. you know, they're Mm -hmm. not local to me, Mm -hmm. but I think about, there's a way, when you think about oral history, not in the capital capital H sense, but Mm -hmm. just like, you know, indigenous ways of knowing, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, the. Back in the day, not like in New York City right now, but you know the people in your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. You know who's the one kind of doing harm or kind of what the history was behind that. Mm -hmm. And so kind of the role of that forever memory is very dependent kind of on the social context. Like I definitely wouldn't want my New York Times meeting table to remember everything.
2: Hell no. Uh, Or even to know my reputation as as I, right? It shouldn't know who I am at all outside of speaker seated at this spot, right? It shouldn't know, you know, this person with this LinkedIn profile is now sitting at the table. That's not what the table is for. Right. Um, I, I totally agree. And I think the, I think the metaphors you're, you're using the, the to speak about being a local that just hits my sweet spot perfectly. I, I have such a um, so much of what I love in different experiences or different, different um, uh, interactions is being able quickly to feel accustomed, to feel local, to feel welcomed, to feel virtuostic. Um, the the group I studied with in grad school was called the Hyper Instruments Group, and they their goal was basically to create um, interfaces that allowed people to be virtuostic on new technologies. Usually, this was musical, but it could also be artistic or expressive. Um, You know, it's one thing to make a computer keyboard that properly registers keystrokes. It's another thing to make it pressure sensitive so that you can be, you know, you can type really expressively, you can play a song on it. Um, And that's really another rubric I use when I evaluate technologies is how much ambiguity do they let you um, fill in the blanks for? Um, One of my very favorite wearable devices Wearables were such a confusing fad for a while uh, when they were all just surveillance, when they were all just Fitbits and listeners. I really didn't understand why we were hiring these devices to record everything all the time. Um, But um, Kate Hartman, who runs the Social Body Lab at OCAD, Ontario College of Art and Design, she has this magnificent uh, work called, um, um, oh my God, Nudgeables, called Nudgeables. They're just two circuit boards. They're paired together. So when you press the button on one circuit board, um, a vibrating motor vibrates on the other circuit board. That is it. Um, And so her students then accept that. They they take it into different situations and, and create different social functions for it. So somebody made a scarf with conductive threads, that's designed to send a secret message to her partner when she's talking to someone boring at a party, she can cross the scarf over her neck and the conductive thread closes a circuit and sends the buzz, come rescue me. You know, I'm. You know, uh, other people um, linked them across the internet and made it a remote hug. Um, what I really like about the platform, about the space Kate made is that it isn't, you know, send a hug, it's, you know, press the button and make a vibration happen. What the two users inscribe, what meaning they inscribe into that is completely up to them. And I think it is so um, elegant and so graceful, so magnanimous to allow people just this one, you know, it's a, it's a one-bit interaction, right? Is the button pressed or not uh, over time? And yet people develop their own shorthand, their own intimate private language. Um, Robin Sloan, uh, the, the writer, has this really lovely article called An App Can Be a Home-Cooked Meal. And he's talking about using this app called Boop Snoop. Um, And Boop Snoop is kind of like, you know, a camera, TikTok or Vine app. You open it up, pressing your thumb on the screen starts recording a video, lifting your thumb off the screen, sends the video to every user of the app. Um, And the reason that works is because Robin wrote the app and there's only four users. There's him and his wife and his children. That's who the app is for. He's never going to distribute it anywhere. It's artisanal app, right? And he refers to this as a home cooked meal. Um, I really like the idea that um, we're now we're now able to wield different different levels of abstraction, different parts of the stack, freely enough that Robin was able in a day or week, I don't know, to cook up, you know. Just an experience just for him, it didn't have to be a product offering. He didn't need a series a um he you know this is uh, an experience that will no doubt go away as soon as iTunes changes their app developer rules again. but it is a, a momentary glimpse of a desirable and durable future. I think that's that's really something.
1: Sorry, I was just thinking about that that's that's really incredibly sweet i I make a lot of these kinds of widgets. I think a lot of the, the yeah, me kind too. Of- uh, right? Like these, the, the kinds of people that, that I think we both interact with a fair amount do this, where it's like you have this skill set that is not um, actually hyper specialized necessarily, but it's more so the ability to tinker. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and the, there's a lot of tools out there. And, and Khadija and I spend a fair amount of time, I think, talking about tools and like this idea of like, you know, interdisciplinary work is hard, but mm-hmm. like what you can always do is make tools easier. Is is a kind of argument I'm I'm kind of always making, right? Is you don't Mm -hmm. you don't need you you should and absolutely uh want to do as much like deep interdisciplinary work as possible, but there is an incredible value to like making it so that like anyone can just like pick up a thing and start playing with it. Mm -hmm. Um and so what that allows you to do is I think this this idea of a home cooked meal, right? Like anyone can go on YouTube and like learn how to make a delicious meal, right? Like the, Mm -hmm. the barriers are incredibly low. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think it provides us, uh, an alternative future when what we're inundated with is kind of the the products of a a kind of capitalist tech ecosystem.
2: Yeah. And it's, and it's, it didn't have to be so limited. It didn't have to, you know, I, I think, you could make an argument that the way venture capital evolved, it was always going to be an aspect of the way new technologies get made, but it didn't have to be the dominant or only one. And it's, you know, I I, I, I get misty-eyed. I think about other ways it might have developed. Um, you know, if uh, Doug Engelbart's prototype had had just been made, <laughs> um, we would be in a different world, right? I think it's really interesting you brought up YouTube because that's one of my, I think, lurking is one, one affordance of a graceful system that gets undercapitalized? capitalized um, I've personally, I owe YouTube just an incredible debt of gratitude. I, I know that it's toxic and full of sludge, but I... I must have done it. I'm right.
0: also a YouTube Academy alumni. I appreciated your pro lurking position, although I feel like we like call it something nicer. Nicer lurking <laughs> feels a little bit stalkish. Um, <laughs> like, like I I do like functionally I like I like that kind of anonymous distance while consuming like
2: that. And so you don't have to. Yeah, I mean, I, I so I I taught myself wood turning. Uh, I've never been in the room with another person who turns wood on a lathe but I've been doing it for six years now because I've just watched enough YouTubes. uh, And I got, I got to survey the field of practitioners without ever um, feeling unkind, but by ignoring some person's advice and and endorsing another's, I got to invisibly survey all of these works. I got to be in the classroom for so many hours without needing to nominate myself or stick out or put, put my anxieties out there. Um, And I, I just think it's, 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 it feels like a democratization of access to information on a scale that I'm not sure I could think of an, uh, of an analogous event in, 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 in the past.
1: But so much of that requires the personalities that, that I think you and Khadija have, right. Which is mm-hmm. the alternative is how most people interact with, with YouTube, which is through the algorithm. And mm-hmm. numerous people have just like described the ways that it, pushes people in the just worst possible direction.
2: Yeah. Just for time on site. But that's That's true of any tool. Yeah. So I made a thing. I'm not sure, Ilan, if I showed you this, but uh, if you go to sublime.cloud, anytime I'm watching a YouTube video, you can watch it alongside me in sync. Um, So uh, (laughs) (laughs) that's wonderful. And and I I made it specifically (laughs) so that I, I cannot see if anyone is checking in on it. I can't view metrics. I, I didn't want to turn into a VJ. So I have no idea when a friend of mine is looking, but sometimes I'll get like a nice email from Rob Faludi that says like, Oh, I see you're watching a lot of like this steeplejacks videos, uh, or, or having your page open has actually ruined my YouTube recommendations because they show up as views on your account too. So he, he, I think actually termed it a semantic STD because I had infected his recommendations with content. I was, I was seeding. Um, and I just think that sort of intimacy, right? Now, now you know it, and I, 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 I'm okay with people seeing it and people going to it. It's really, you know, I'm I'm not ceding a lot of privacy, but the, there's a great deal of intimacy that comes from knowing that you and I are both watching the same industrial donut equipment maintenance video at 11:30 tonight. <laughs> I will say that what's up there right now
1: is the Tiny Chef Show, oh, um, okay. Tiny Thanksgiving, and this yeah. is. This is going to take up some of my time later
2: tonight. Those are those are only a minute long. But yeah, it does load with the last one I watched. So it, you will have to press play once, I think, to get around autoplay restrictions <laughs> on. Uh, but again, this is a home cook app, right? I have a Chrome extension that just harvests this info for me. It's only me. Uh, I haven't shared it anywhere. I guess I, I put, you know, the, the code is on GitHub, but it's a home cooked app. It's not for anyone else to use specifically. And that type of thing, I, I make that kind of hoping that, maybe you'll, you or others will see a different type of YouTube to watch. Like, do you know how many Germans are making tiny remote control construction vehicle setups? Like a lot of them. Um, this is important.
0: <laughs> well, also it's just interesting. So I don't know if you know Todd Anderson. He did pre-COVID, um, although I guess it exists virtually now. He does these things, word hack, where it's like, I don't even know how do you describe this like computer poetry but that feels a little bit insufficient. But he had this thing uh hitchhiker that we did a project with we be imagining where basically you can voluntarily hack into people's computers and then you get like weird tours through the internet and then you can like kind of live modify so you could set the NYPD website on fire for example Oh, and, like cool. not literally just for Yeah, just know, vandalize the web. Um Yeah, and it just made me think like how few, like if you're not a technologist, you very few people have the skill set or that entry point to think about tinkering mm-hmm. through the internet. Yeah, like I think modifying algorithms, like vis a vis, like pushing in your choices into somebody's out somebody else's, people are aware of, but that I don't know. I guess I don't think of like even if you're putting that GitHub stuff online, you know, who is you know how yeah. how broad is the scope of people that can then access and implement?
2: that? Sure, and and I think you're right. I mean the The semantic infection of my friends' feed is kind of a funny side effect that I certainly didn't didn't intend to happen. Uh, I think it's pretty trickster to inject your own stuff in someone else's algo feed, Um, unless you consent to that as part of a fun game. I'm not sure that's a very nice. Oh, my kids do
0: that to me all the time.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, it is. It is fun. Often in a talk, I'll introduce myself by showing my Amazon recommendations, my YouTube recommendations. and I forget what else. Uh, but generally, that's kind of a good way to, to get to know me, right? Um, I, I worked on, I, I complained before about wearables being these like super listeners, super recorders, not, not really giving anything back. Um, and for a while, I was trying to work on the other side of that. I was working on an idea about social wearables, which would be like things that I wear specifically to augment and enhance the interactions I have in real life. Um, So one of those was just a little pin that had a uh, an OLED screen on a little digital screen, and it just went through links I had recently bookmarked and surfaced terms. And the idea was, if I just wore this on my bag or whatnot, maybe you would be interested in, you know, a, a phrase or two, you know, donut donut device repair, and then we have a conversation about it. Um, I liked the way that surfaced. And entangled my online and offline interests. Um, it's certainly not for everyone. You know, it's very outgoing and experimental. But that—that's the type of experimental exchange that I think might help people understand that there is a way to get interested in this without going to a hacker academy and coding and drinking club mate all the time. Um, something like, you know, Arduino and Processing and even Glitch uh, are kind of nice roots into that type of tinkering. But I don't think it has to be purely technological. Um, the type of tinkering we're talking about is kind of, um, it's kind of of a kind with some of the situationists whose work I, I was influenced by a lot in, in grad school. Um, you know, a tactical navigation of uh, a city, uh, you know, like parkour, Um, uh, instead of the sort of strategic overview of the architectural formation of a city for the purpose of commerce and control of citizens, being able to tactically navigate those systems in casual, in slack, in shorthand, I think is kind of going to be the dominant way we get along in the next 10 years. Um, Already, you know, the people who are younger than me are much more adept at, for example, getting around... uh, block lists for words or the Great Firewall in China. Um, this type of um, casual circumvention is becoming all the more, you know, de rigueur. Um, starting from Kazaa and uh, Oink and whatnot back in the aughts, um, these, these flip sides, the, the, the bazaar rather than the, the mall, um, uh, I think are a better space for that type of intervention and, and outreach
1: there was a there was a book i it's a, it's a short one i read a while back called a, a burglar's guide to the city
2: oh uh, by jeff Manor. and
1: yeah. It, yeah and i think it's it's a fun way to to kind of play this game right where it's it's not necessarily a technologist can see the world x way but but it's more so like people have varying skill sets and it allows them to break different kinds of rules mm. both in like in activity but also in terms of perception right and so mm-hmm. like Khadija constantly brings up the fact that she is a non-academic in academic spaces. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it it changes the interactions in the same way that, like, I think a burglar sees the city a different way because uh, they have a fundamentally different way of of understanding the spaces they're operating within.
2: And so I, I totally, I agree. And I think w- the experience we imagine when we read that book is like this fantasy of, getting the burglars tour, right? Getting backstage in, to, to bring up Goffman again. What we love about that is putting on the lens of someone who's a local in a different way. Does that make sense? Um, that That's the sort of operational or... Um, um, there's a capability intimacy there that I think YouTube is really good at and books like um, Jeff's are, are really good at. This idea um, of seeing through a different system's eyes has been um, growing in popularity. Also, there's Ian Bogust's uh, Alien Phenomenology from like 10 years ago, what it's like to be a thing, um, and and a, a couple of other things. Braiding Sweetgrass is also kind of a, a different twist on that. Um, I know someone brought that up on your on your podcast earlier. Brianne. Yeah, yeah. I'm in the middle of that My book. I think it
0: was Brianne Barker.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, The other thing that I was going to bring up is that, one, it just as far as being a local, I think about that a lot with podcasts, like my favorite podcast. And I hope what we offer to our listeners is that kind of inside baseball Mm -hmm. feels. I mean, like the the best podcast maybe only have 10,000 listeners versus 2 million listeners, like something like the BBC. Mm -hmm. But you feel like you're getting this inside take on something that you have total like no exposure to outside of this. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also on you sharing your, your uh, YouTube and Amazon algorithms. It just reminded me of my very first social media platform was Tumblr Mm -hmm. and I was super into uh, autistic Tumblr. Mm. And so there's this whole like sub thread around info dumping. And so people have these times of day where you could like, Info dumping just means that, you know, like, uh, the autistic trait that you're like hyper focused on some particular topic, like the canonical one is trains, but people could be into like all types of stuff. Yeah. And there's just this time where you're like exchanging massive amounts of information about your thing. That sounds awesome. And I like socially, that's part of the lurking. Yeah. It's like, yeah, let's just talk about fungi. Yeah.
2: Oh man. I love it. (laughs) That's that, you know, geeking out. That's the, that's the, the, uh, Another way that a lot of like that, man, that's a thing that happens at hardware conferences all the time. People get to the coffee urn and then they just want to tell you about, you know, 802.5.11a or whatever. Um,
0: well, since we're at the 49 minute mark and I know we had to get to the recommendation part. I know this is like so left of center of everything else we've been talking about mm. in a way, but I know that you share, like, I love, I'm like super obsessed with fungi and uh, I'm always like the conceptual like framework for we Be Imagining is all about like the wood bound web and uh, mm. mycelial communication. So you want to just talk about your whole thing? on mushroom?
2: Sure. I'm an, I'm a newbie. I mean, I, I, over coronavirus, I, um, I kind of perfected my sourdough setup because I was already kind of doing that, um, and I got into to, to fungi because um, they seem just controllable enough to be interesting. If that makes any sense, like it's it, it what I, I followed a lot of guides online and built a box that controls the humidity and airflow and temperature of the of the incubation chamber, and I, I'm using this wonderful open source platform called Mycodo M Y C O D O. It has like closed loop control of all these things. And it's really easy to write your own harnesses for it. And I got into them in part because they make for beautiful time lapses and in part because they uh, creep the hell out of me. What the hell? What are, I mean, they're not plants and they're not animals. They're very (laughs) strange. Um, They're, I I keep thinking about, like, they've gotten me to go to the parts of the woods I never would have gone to before, um, which is, uh just very strange to me i've gone to the woods my whole life but i've never you know sought out the places that now turn out to be you know where, where you would find the best mushrooms um, and the other thing i can't stop thinking about is just the um, the imminence um, my my colleague mike Dewar talked a lot about imminence i m m a n e n c e this idea of the sort of the noumena of of a place the 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 um, the essential invisible manifestation of the ethos or aura of a place and the the way that mycelia are more or less undetectable until they start fruiting. It's so strange and interesting. It makes me think a lot about the current language of of server deployment, of server architecture is, you know, you amass a fleet. It's fairly militarized. You know, you, you have a, a fleet of containers of, you know, Docker, or Kubernetes contraptions. I've Tried hard not to have to learn what Kubernetes is, but um, it, it's it's very much like the supply chain of a military endeavor, where you bring everything you need to a to a, a very faraway place, you build everything exactly how you build it all everywhere else, and then you take it away. Um, and I wonder what it's like instead to view computational resources as embodied in the environment, kind of the way calm computing um, talks about it, and and um, ambient computing also. But how would you how would you manifest how would you manifest code maybe even for a tinkering task like we've been talking about just for a tactical um, unplanned uh, assemblage a bricolage of different functionalities how would how would that follow a, a, a mycological metaphor how would we follow that how would we what what's the equivalent of mycelium I think of almost a viral action of a very small a code with a very small profile that observes its environments and then decides what can be made out of the existing installs or the existing assets and resources. And I I think a lot about systems that you could set on their own to go do that. Um, I'm working actually right now on a project I can't discuss on on, on here. Uh, It'll be published um, October uh, 2021, but it involves a lot of these questions sort of manifested into a big room with uh, robots. did that make any sense maybe that didn't make any sense
1: yeah i mean i don't know no, if maybe, this is yeah. this is helpful but do you want to talk a little bit about the the bitcoin thing you mentioned you you wanted to do with the new york times or or maybe we should save
2: that oh no that was just yeah that i mean <laughs> i kept losing computers in the in the floor um, so i was i was working a lot with beaglebones and and raspberry Pis, mostly beaglebones and this was in 2012 2013 and i one of the first things I thought, and I wanted to keep my job, so I decided not to do it, was i mean nobody was paying attention to like if i was if one extra device was using ten extra watts of power or if you know network traffic to to the lab we had a pretty permissive firewall um I was really tempted to just um to to lose a you know you could take up the floorboards and store stuff under the floor so I would put computers there. I was very tempted to create um Well, I was also, sorry, I was also really interested in algorithmic ad buying and the ad market, you know, the bidding that takes place as you load a page to serve you a particular ad. Um, All of that is pretty heavily automated. And so we started joking um, about setting up a system where, um, okay, so I have a beagle bone in the floor and I set it to mine Bitcoin. And when it's got enough Bitcoin, it buys uh, some server space. Uh, and a domain name and starts selling display ads to get people to come to its domain. Um, And the domain hosts ads itself. And so it is essentially its own sort of ad tech business, but it would be cryptographically secure so that nobody could open the wallet except for the software. Um, And so the idea was to have this stupid little computer hidden in the floor, working away, getting much richer than us, um, doing, you know, the sort of mindless ad tech marketing that, that can be done uh you know automatically um i don't think I don't regret not doing that but it was a fun idea to to talk about um we 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 got a we we were allowed to do quite a few things i i, I think that might have pushed the line if we had for example told the senior vice president that we had made you know hundred thousand dollars but we couldn't use it <laughs> I I think it is Mm -hmm. a little bit like the idea of the mushroom, right? Where it's taking this kind of
1: underutilized resource and and kind of turning it into something productive. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It seems to be in the same way as a mushroom filling this gap, right? Just like underneath the floorboard.
0: I just was going to add, I was thinking about, so growing up, I used to go to the Mac Expo all the time. Like I remember when the iMac came out. And then I remember when those Bondi Blue iMacs started getting old. And then the big thing was to make them into fish tanks. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that was also the beginning of the maker's uh, fair. And so before it got, like, co-opted by all the major corporations, you'd go there and people were really into those jars with single, what do they call it, single cycle uh, ecosystems or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And so to me, the mycelium thing is almost thinking about if you're, like, growing this whole ecology from the computers and then you get them to start coding. Um, Like, you know, we may not all be interacting with coals, but we're all interacting with these like rare stones, like from the earlier in the supply chain that mm-hmm. are then encoded into these devices. And so I was thinking about how are ways that we can kind of overlap in a less extractive way with those like points of entry at, earlier in the supply chain. That was to me, the thing with the mycelium. Yeah,
2: no. Um, I, and I imagine
0: you already went down the Paul Stamets rabbit hole.
2: Totally. Yep. I'm I'm uh, debating if I'm going to splurge for the, the class. Uh, <laughs> um but, yeah, I think the, the, the mycological sort of turn is really interesting. In, in particular, um, in, in a graceful systems context, uh, there, there's this phenomenon or a, a, a practice called agathonic design, um, which is just a term for um, designed objects that are intended to get better with age. So the way leather wears to accommodate your body or the way um, um, beautifully turned objects patinate um things that are designed to be repurposed. So using common thread sizes on jars so that you can always use a peanut butter jar later for you know, storage or whatnot. Um, it's pretty it's pretty obvious why capitalist rent-seeking systems would explicitly work against this. It's pretty galling that those same systems are now being encoded in legislature that forbids you from repairing your tractor or your iPhone. Um, but I really think that The mycological metaphor, the the ability to view decay as the most efficient and honorable reuse of the the materials no longer needed, um, I think is something we could all um, try to apply to the systems we we build or or recommend.
0: Um, So I feel... Let's 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 scroll to the ritual situation. Um, is there something that you would like to share with our listeners that you're reading, watching, listening to? Um, uh, it could be anything.
2: I got I got two things. Um, my one of my favorite writers, George Saunders, has a failed sitcom pilot called Sea Oak, starring Glenn Close, and you should find it and watch it. It's really obvious why it wasn't picked up, and it's a superb forty minutes. And the other one is this book by Michael Twitty called The Cooking Gene. It's a couple years old now, but it was just such a delightful read. Um, it's part genealogical, you know, investigative history. It's part autobiography and it's part culinary history of the food ways of the enslaved. Um, it's just an incredibly written book. I think he won a prize for it, but um, it's badass. And I think more people should read it.
0: Well, dope. Thank you, Ilan, for inviting Noah. Noah, thank Thanks you for, for coming having on me. to the show. Would you, is there a, is there something that you want to shout out from your own work, like either your social media handles or just your website I'm, I'm, or anything you want people to check out? Uh,
2: I'm aka.farm. Um, my, maybe my Twitter will get better when when Trump's out of office, but for now, you should, it's, it's all just despair and retweets. So aka.farm is my website. That's where I'll post you know, upcoming work and whatnot. Um, thanks so much for having me on. I don't get the chance to talk about stuff like this too often. I hope it came out semi articulate
0: yeah, no, this was really fun, and we want you to recruit more people sure. so that we can have continue to have these type of conversations. Um, so, thank you to everybody who's listening to the show. Please check us out on We Be Imagining either on iTunes Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Oh, and we have a Patreon now. Patreon, <laughs> We Be Imagining. Become a patron. Give us some money. We're trying to expand. So if you want to hear more episodes like this, please become a patron. And that will allow us to do more investigative deep series and fun, whimsical episodes like today's. And yeah, that's it. Bye, y'all.